Greetings, Pear Shorbins of Retrogrades. Today I come to you live with a critique and a series of review comments on the Netflix documentary, The Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, which turns out to be an important thing for us Catholics, particularly us red-pilled Catholics. And, and it's not something I knew about even before beginning to view the four-part documentary. It has much to do with uh, pedo S-A-T-A-N-ism. It has to do with uh, how the Vatican has operated over the last 60 years. And yet, not, it has to do with Vigano and uh, exorcism, the takeover of the Vatican by bad guys that is probable. And yet, Netflix doesn't commit to this view. So, so how does this work? Netflix puts out this documentary series, four-part series, and claims that it's like a hit piece or claims a posture as if they're doing a hit piece on Roman Catholics, believing Roman Catholics. Well, it's only a hit piece on blue-pilled believing Roman Catholics because really it ends up being a very certain kind of propaganda. And so before I can get into any equipoise of review or critique on disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi specifically, we need to talk about propaganda. And this is timely because I've been meaning to do a propaganda show for a long time. But suffice to say right now at the beginning of today's show that this is the third, by my count, Netflix documentary that deals with this pedo s pedo s pedo s a t a n ism topic by reducing it to far more boring everyday banalities while claiming the mantle of expose which is uh, a tricky trick and it's part of how propaganda works and we'll talk about the different kinds of propaganda today before we get to the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi. But for starters, I just want to say that this has come out, same topic, ought to be what's really behind the curtain in two other Netflix documentaries I've watched since 2019. The first one was this uh, documentary about Madeline McCann. Madeline McCann is an English little girl that was kidnapped that Netflix claims to have done an expose on in 2019, I believe. It's called The Disappearance of Madeline McCann. The second one was a 20, late 2020 or early 2021 documentary on our favorite wicked bad guy that we all beat up on now. He's, his new name is like, uh, he's like a new Hitler. He's the new Hitler name for someone that everybody hates. Epstein. And the documentary is called Filthy Rich. So both of these are likely, this is a bit of speculation, but I know a bit about both these cases, a bit more than a bit, Pedo S cases. And the, working backwards first, the Epstein documentary is reduced from a, a clear instance of a, a Satanist with an island where he would bring in all of the world's elite, including Supreme Court justices, guys like Bill Gates, world leaders, pop stars. 
He'd fly them in and they would do satanic things at a satanic temple, a large, uh, I, think, I think it's colored blue and white, whatever that means, satanic temple that locked, had a door that locked from the outside and had underground, um, I guess you'd call them jail cells, right? Things like this that the FBI and our intel agencies went in first, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed all evidence of it. That's, that's just a fact. So folks like me watched the Epstein documentary because I thought, oh, naively, I thought maybe you'll find out more about this temple and find out more about the obvious Satanism that was going on, find out more about the, you know, the, the night he died, including his cellmate who was pulled 12 hours before, the two guards who fell asleep, the videotape that stopped working. I thought there might be three more details like these three interesting details, and there's nothing. It was all about reducing his entire case being filthy rich and a real pervert to a guy who slept with girls that were technically underage, 17 years old and 11 months or something. Oh, that's bad. It's a a false case of watering down. It is a false case of watering down that is reducible to the opposite of agitation propaganda. We're going to talk about this in a second. But pacification propaganda. I'm going to play you a, a clip that ought to be your blueprint for the way that media works in these informational wars days of 2023. It's been going on for at least 15 years, far longer because the CIA has indirectly or directly run Hollywood for so long. Agitation propaganda is basic Black Lives Matter stuff, or watching a... a not, not that I have any love for, for socialists like Hitler or Germany, I don't, but if you watch a Spielberg movie on World War II, that's a, a low-key agitation propaganda. Black Lives Matter is slightly higher-key agitation propaganda. Post-colonial woke stuff is, you know middle-key agitation propaganda. There's higher-key agitprop, which is meant to start revolutions, and the United States uh, deep state, the CIA in particular, was using this in South America and Eastern Europe all throughout the 60s and the 70s in Eastern Europe to actual foment real revolutions. We'll talk about how agitprop works, but this is pacification prop. Films like The Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi or Epstein Filthy Rich or Madeleine McCann, who, uh, whose real case probably, this is my opinion now, probably involves the Wanted poster that came out in Portugal where Ma- little English Madeleine McCann, the little girl, was unfortunately kidnapped from. You could go see the Wanted poster, which has two characters that look exactly like John and Tony uh, uh, Pederesta. Uh, Their last name rhymes with that, Pederesti. John and Tony Podesta. There's a description, uh, an artist rendition of these characters, and they look identical to these two. And they were staying at Sigmund Freud's great-nephew around the corner from Madeleine McCann. These two Characters are not mentioned once in reference to the night that she was taken from a hotel room in Portugal. They present in pacification propaganda in all three of these documentaries. They present differential diagnoses, differential theories 
spaghetti splatter on the wall. They're presented usually non-sequentially. And they, they do do some manner of distinction, distinguishing. They'll say, ah, oh, this theory doesn't work. It's busted because of X. And that might be accurate. But they mix truth with lies. And the main lie is a lie of omission. In all three of these Netflix documentaries I've seen over the last three and a half years, the primary lie is a lie of omission. The primary diagnosis. Pedo S uh, is utterly skipped over. Epstein's a pervert because he, he uh, got inappropriate rubdowns and had inappropriate relations with 17-year-old girls. Not, never, never, you know, one-year-old babies that were then, I don't know, murdered. That's, that's what Pato S is, right? It's not about 17-year-old girls. That's what having satanic temples on an island where I was unclear on whether or not extradition applies in reference to Epstein, where, where you, you might not be extraditable. extraditable. Yeah, it's, we're talking about kidnap, murder, torture, rape of not, not, not semi-consensual uh, intercourse with people who are underage by at most a year. We're talking about the, the kidnap, the rape of infants and murder. Horrible stuff that's an absolute reality and it is absolutely the topic in all of these documentaries, whether Netflix will admit it or not. Of course, Emanuela Orlandi, who was one of the hundred citizens of, uh, who are lay people of Vatican City when she was taken in, uh, on June 22nd, 1983. She, of course, wasn't an infant. But the point is, Pedo S is really what's behind the curtain and yet, Netflix, while purporting to give you a glimpse behind the curtain, is actually pacifying you with propaganda so that you will look at some far, far, far lesser bogeyman, identify it, and then say, move along. I, I, I saw that. And Netflix, these, these, uh, these people in Hollywood, they gave me the ticket. No, that's not what happened. What happened, actually, is a process called watering down. And yes, I understand the irony of, I'm about to show you a clip that I think is the most important clip in fiction in terms of identifying this process of pacification propaganda that I've seen ever. And it does come from a Netflix show, so I, I get it. But they don't say that this is what's happening all the time on all Netflix documentaries, on a bunch of Netflix fiction shows. So you're getting a little bit of a look, a peek at the purloined letter on the mantle in this scene. And it happens to be a great show. And I've talked about it. I've done patrons-only live streams about Stranger Things. This comes from Stranger Things Season 2. And it explains to you what news and entertainment media really are. Even Netflix. Uh, first, I just want to remind you to go to timothyjgordon.com. If you want to support this channel, if you want to get one of the four books associated with my name or the book associated with Steph's name, that's Ask Your Husband. We do tons of positive things, tons of positive content. We don't just anti-Pope-splain. That's just one small thing. We're helping to build better families by building better marital relationships, and that's become one of the main projects here at Rules for Retrogrades. If you want to support 
Our Patreon page is there on timothyjgordon.com if you want to help me out. Donor box is a strictly donative uh, second route you can take. That has nothing to do with the channel. We appreciate it kindly. At the very least, like, subscribe, click the notification bell for this channel on YouTube. And also leave a comment. Today's stuff is not what you're getting on most other Catholic channels. You can watch Jay Dyer, who's been at this talking about propaganda for longer than I have. Or my friend, quite frankly, he's been doing it longer than I have. Even my friend, Dr. Michael Robillard, has shared the way military intel would, works with me some. So I'm not claiming to be the oldest OG on the block here, but Catholics are really naive when it comes to the way that propaganda works. So leave a comment if you like what you see here. Also, you already know what I'm going to say. Part of being safe and keeping your family safe is getting out of a blue state and getting to a red state. Go to realestateforlife.org. They'll help you do so in the most expedient way possible. realestateforlife.org. Get out of your blue state. Get to a red state like I did. I got from the bluest of the blue to the reddest of the red here in the blood red swath of states from Texas to Florida. to where I particularly recommend. Okay, so before we can get into specifics on the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, which is very, very interesting in the post-Theodore McCarrick summer and fall of shame of 2018, Catholic world, tons of, tons of implications for those of you who are interested in, say, windswept house. Things like the Pedo S inside the Vat likely inside the Vatican over the last century. Well, before we can get to that, we have to talk about propaganda itself. Now, listen to this. I, I really want you to listen. This is from season two, it's episode five of Stranger Things. You get a peek behind the curtain as two characters, this spy guy Murray Bauman, talks to Nancy, one of the main characters, about how to get the normies to steal a peek behind the curtain, how to break a big story, because as the title of the show suggests, stranger things than even what's being depicted have happened, and the government's in on, I'm sorry to say, all of it. St far stranger things. pedo s kinds of things play, I'm sorry to say, a very big role in our world in the way that the, the elite get and maintain power. So you're getting a peek behind the curtain while talking about how to get the normies, the 95% of people, to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. And it's a process known as watering it down. Here, I'm going to play it for you here. Is the tape incriminating or not? It's a simple question. <laughs> they want to show, they want to release an incriminating tape with evidence that normies are going to be loath to believe. So she says, Nancy says to Murray, who's wiser when it comes to releasing credible but incredible evidence. And he laughs and he says, there's nothing simple about it. Oh, there's nothing simple about it. Nothing simple about anything you've told me. You don't believe this, do you? I believe you, but that's not the problem. You don't need me to believe you. You need them to believe you. Them? Them. With a capital T. Your priest, your postman, your teacher, the world at large. I won't believe any of this. That's why we made the tape. Oh, that's easy to bury. Easy. He admits it. You heard it. He admits culpability. You're being naive, Nancy. Those people. So even an admission on a tape 
Think, think all we do know about Epstein. This isn't enough to convince your, your, your postman, your average normie out there. They're still loath to believe it. Even what we know about the, the uh, Clinton kill list, you know, dozens of names long. And if you tell them so-and-so is like a W-I-T-C-H, they won't believe it, really. Even with some of the strong insinuations about Anthony Weiner's laptop, they will not believe you. So the question is, it takes a 17 or an 18-year-old to say something as naive as saying, hey, show them the material evidence. We call it law material evidence. Show them uh, a tape with an admission. And Murray Bauman says, no, this isn't how this works. That's not how you reach the unreachable. In the truest, strictest sense, the normies are unreachable, the 90%. And he's saying, how can we at least reach them partially? That's what the next portion's about. They're not wired like me. He admits it. You heard it. He admits culpability. You're being naive, Nancy. Those people. They're not wired like me and you, okay? They don't spend their lives trying to get a look at what's behind the curtain. They like the curtain. It provides them stability, comfort, definition. This, this would open the curtain and open the curtain behind that curtain, okay? So the minute someone with an ounce of authority calls bullshit, everyone will nod their heads and say, see, ha, I knew it. It was bullshit. That is, if you even get their attention at all. So you're saying we did all of this for nothing? I'm saying I'm thinking. <laughs> I say this a lot to my girls. They'll say, well, what, what do we do? I'm, I'm saying I'm thinking. How often do you hear me say it? <laughs> it's complex. Nancy's an impetuous teen. Yes, yeah, she's, she's one of the, the non-normies. She's had a peek behind the curtain. We're, we're already a season and a half into Stranger Things, a big peek behind the curtain. But she thinks, well, if we can't just show direct evidence to the normies, your postman or whatever else he, he identifies as a normie, is everyone, right? It's 90% of the people. Well, then everything's just a big waste of time, everything we've done. And he says, no, we have to think. We have to think now. There has to be a way to mitigate things. Where it will, you know, you can't just drag the normies out of the cave. This is what book seven of Plato's Republic is all about. They will kill you. Don't think they won't. So even, even I, I don't know what's going on in the comments, but even hearing this show, I don't know. I don't know what the response of people is going to be. I've been wanting to do it for a long time. But the fact of the matter is the normies like the curtain and false dichotomies like, well, if someone is in the Vatican, they're a Catholic and they're a good guy. And if someone works for Netflix, they don't have our religion. They don't share our faith or they share some other faith. And they're not a good guy and they don't like that. No, there's all kinds of mesalliances, mesalliances behind the scenes. And it's unfortunately, the last hundred years or so, we have a lot of the bad guys in the cardinalate. This is what this show is partly all about. This is where you got to know me talking about Sankt Gallen Mafia, Windswept House on, on Taylor Marshall's channel. So it's not as simple as all that. Here's how you reduce the message so that it's ingestible to your average postman or teacher normie. 
He's drinking vodka that's too strong, as he's thinking. This is ridiculous. That's it. That's it. What's it? It's just too strong. Too strong. Better. So he's, he's drinking vodka and he's watering it down and saying better, better, better. This is how you can actually, I mean, what, what actually the elites in our world do is so heinous that you're never going to get 90% of the normies to, to accept it. They'll, they just won't accept it. Doesn't matter how you show them, doesn't matter how you prove it. Uh, remember the, the famous story of Jeffrey Dahmer. His, one of his victims escaped, ran to the police station, told them what was going on. Jeffrey Dahmer showed up, fetched him back, saying, my friend's kind of cuckoo, I'll take care of him. And the police relinquished the victim back to Dahmer, who went on and killed him. Because, for one thing, we all have normalcy bias, but normies have normalcy bias really strong. They don't really believe anything. I'm talking about your average sort of suburbanite or urbanite. They don't really believe in anything. They have no principle. They're never willing to sacrifice themselves. And they're never willing to sacrifice their previous views. Which is just, you know, what's, who's, who's playing at the Super Bowl this year? That's all they think about. That's the 90%. I mean, this is Plato and Aristotle. This isn't just Murray Bauman from Stranger Things. This is Plato and Aristotle. So how do you ever get them to accept something without them either retaliating and killing you, the way Plato says they will if you show normies the truth? Well, you have to water it down, like Murray is watering down his uh, Stolichnaya. Perfect. We water it down. Precisely. Wait, what? Your story. We moderate it. <laughs> Just like this drink here. We make it more tolerable. Perhaps Barbara was exposed to some dangerous toxins. A leak from the lab, like Three Mile Island or something. Something scary, but familiar. There it is. So this is how the world works. Something scary, but familiar is the way that the world elites who run all the institutions of power that they stormed sometime in the earlier mid-20th century, how they get out ahead of stories. Epstein, he's a household name, right? Everyone knows that there was, well, every other conservative knows, maybe half of them, know that there was this satanic temple on Epstein Island that locked from the outside and had kill rooms downstairs and that he didn't really kill himself. But Netflix who's, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Generally speaking, I would say they stand for the proposition of an interest that is quote-unquote in on it. They're one of the big media companies. They're owned by some of the big media folks that count as world elite that are on the same side as Epstein. So these people are pros at releasing uh, defenses which get out in front of the story in a way which Murray Bauman says, release something scary yet familiar. Which is why when you go, if you do, watch Netflix, 
watch the Epstein Filthy Rich documentary. It's all about something scary yet familiar. Teen, teen girls who are, you know, of a, of a dating age, but are, are technically of an age beneath what would have been legal for uh, Epstein to sleep with. They were they fell into a trap of earning a, a buck by giving him a massage, and then they got drawn into a, a larger world. I, I forget where their families are. They don't have great family lives, most of them. And so they wind up going over to his torture island, and, and horrible things happen. And Netflix releases something scary yet totally familiar. Oh, we the average sort of cuck living out in the suburbs that has no principle, would never sacrifice himself for anything noble, is addicted to pornography. Whether or not he's calling himself a, a Catholic now or a Protestant or a, or a nun, an agnostic, he's sort of just a skinny fat pervert who got away with what he could until he got married and now is cuckolded and controlled by his wife, right? I mean, this is, doesn't matter where you live. I don't know where you live. This is at least eight of 10 of your, your neighbors. Throw a dart and you'll hit eight of 10 of these guys. And that's being very charitable. That's what I mean by normie. Guys that never stood for anything and never will. Never took a risk. It's the suburbs. And guess what? It's the same in the cities. The left likes to dump on suburbanites. It's the same in the cities. These guys are even cuckier, arguably. But it's very familiar if a scary light is thrown on this familiarity to talk about someone, some guy like Epstein that's a lot more powerful, orders of magnitude more powerful than the average guy down the street that gets away with what he can because Epstein can get away with a lot more. And yes, the, one of these girls was even 16, not just 17. Well, that's scary yet familiar. It's sleazy yet familiar. We have a sleazy culture. So of course sleaze is familiar. These aren't people that ever denied themselves or did anything uh, particularly in the realm of sex, any kind of virtuous, temperate self-denial. So you just make the Epstein case all about a, a pervert that in really magnificent ways slept with 17-year-old girls. Well, that is not what Epstein represents at all. We are talking about pedo-s, pedo-s-ism, which is absolutely what WikiLeaks proved to all the world in late 2016, all of the world's elites, especially America, are up to at night. This is how they get and maintain power. So it's scary yet familiar. Same thing with Madeline McCann. Uh, same, same actual characters. <laughs> John and Tony P. were staying about a quarter of a mile away from... Uh, it's reported... And I believe it, that John and Tony Podesta may have been staying a quarter of a mile away from where Madeleine McCann was taken at uh, Freud's sexologist, in some manner, nephew or grandnephew. And they are on uh, an FBI, uh, some sort of law agency sketch as having been near or at the scene of the crime. And of course, that like the truer, darker elements of the Epstein documentary, are nowhere to be found in the Madeleine McCann. I think that's another four-part series. That's three or four parts as well. 
So what Netflix is doing is watering down, not for the purpose that Murray and Nancy are, are trying to water stuff down. They're trying to water it down to get the public the most truth the public is willing to accept. That's a noble purpose. Netflix is watering down two or three cases of really public slips, information that slipped out publicly much more than we're used to. They're watering it down in order to cover the bases, to provide an alibi and say, hey, you already looked into it. We, Netflix, we already did a really fascinating, juicy expose on Epstein. We did a fascinating, juicy expose on Madeleine McCann. We did a fascinating, juicy expose on Emanuela Orlandi, which I'm going to talk about in greater detail in a second. And we even, we good folks at Netflix, we even dug around some. We even provided semi-reasonable differential diagnoses, competing theories. We played these theories some one against the other. No, that's not really what they did. Under the auspices of so doing, they actually just threw a bunch of bum theories at the wall you can come up with 10 theories right now for anything. You can't come up with 10 good theories. And they ignored the best fit slope of the line according to the curve. They ignored it. They buried it. And that was the whole purpose. Defending the guilty. I'm not talking about Epstein. right? He was a patsy. I'm talking about all the guilty parties that Epstein represents, which are, I guarantee you, familiar names, heads of state, fellow Hollywood pedos, tons, that we don't know about specifically. Some of the names that flew to Lolita Island we know about, but we have forgotten about. Others we don't even know. That's because Netflix did its job, its role. Pacification propaganda. Now, I'm going to read to you, before we get fully into the disappearance of Madeleine McCann, I'm going to read to you the three major types of propaganda. It's called the colors of propaganda at the NABB Research Center. Here's an, this is a really, really handy distinction between white prop, black prop, and gray propaganda. It says this, if you examine propaganda closely, which is what I want all you parish orphans and retrogrades to begin doing, and I mean everything is propaganda, when you consider who really runs these companies. It's, it's the deep state through, through CIA, FBI, NSA, ONI. They all have direct or indirect role in what leaks out. If you examine propaganda closely, you can typically identify the techniques used to appeal to emotion. What is not always evident is who produced the material. Who produces the, the propaganda at issue is the ground for the distinction between white, black, and gray. Communication experts classify propaganda as black, white, gray, depending on the transparency of the source. You might think this is a boring detail, but it's fascinating that much of what you think is dangerous propaganda, Disney, you know, Disney, the classic white propaganda, they're propagandizing your kids to make them love Globo Homo to turn them into trans, to turn them into feminists. Every single Disney character in the last 15 years is a female leader, right? Contradiction in terms. Uh, so yes, but this is classic white propaganda. 
what is white propaganda? Well, let's learn to determine the source. In white propaganda, the producer of the material is clearly marked and indicated. So, so folks will ask me, Tim, you took your family to Disneyland last year. Sometimes, you know, our kids will put on a Disney movie. All I say is, look, everything they tell you children do the opposite of, right? The, the, the leader, I have one boy and six girls. The, the leader, the one who needs to be trained as a leader is the boy. The girls need to be trained to be virtuous in, in ladylike ways, which does not involve the qualities of leadership. Uh, the, the boys should be the ones being assertive and bold. I, I talked at Christmas time about the Polar Express movie where two boys are given a, a ticket which gives them a moral instruction. And neither of them are told to lead, but the, the little black girl is told to lead. Well, this is perverse. Of course this is perverse. Look, consider the source. That's all I'm asking you to do when you consider white, black, or gray. This is very easy, very, very undangerous uh, for someone like me who is always on the watch. For, for, for my kids, I just tell them, look, do the exact opposite. And my kids make fun of it as they watch the movie. Some of the things that Disney does, it still does very well. It's white propaganda. You just say, do the opposite, and you will thrive, young children. But when you get into black propaganda and gray propaganda, things get more complex. One of the most, let's talk about black propaganda. One of the most deceptive forms of propaganda, the most deceptive form I know about, involves material created by one group but attributed to another. Black propaganda falsely claims a message or image was created by the opposition in order to discredit them. This would be like, and I'm not saying I haven't considered this, writing under a pen name as a feminist, uh, writing to, say, I don't know, what's, what's, a, what's a feminist rag? Vogue or something, Cosmo. And saying, yo, this, this new book, The Case for Patriarchy, or ask your husband. These two books by this husband and wife are so dangerous. They're so dangerous. You can make your own book even look well if you're shilling for it. I haven't, I haven't actually done this as far as I remember. But it's a tremendous, tremendous use of propaganda. It's not white propaganda. It's black propaganda. Say, hey, I want to submit this under a pen name. I am a committed feminist from Cincinnati, Ohio. And, I and you can give a great review of your own book. And you can call it dangerous, which means you're based. The real book is based. And you could say, every feminist out there should read this in order to, to, to write on it constantly. Then you're getting reviews for your book and you're getting sales for your book. Okay, this is very basic. And the left, that remember the CIA, along with other fingers of the deep state, have been running Hollywood for 50 to 70 years. They know exactly how to do this. They do it masterfully well. So don't think for one moment, this is what I tell my, my friends who tend toward Pope-splaining. Do you think, de fide, that the Catholic teaching is that once someone becomes Pope, their agency is, is uh, reduced deterministically? Like they don't have their own free agency anymore? Can they do something wicked? No, I don't think that. Do you think in conclaves when the cardinals are voting for Pope, is it de fide teaching? that the cardinal's agency is reduced deterministically? No. Okay. Well, then we are susceptible of infiltration. We could have absolutely 
wicked prelates who lie and lie all the time. And that's what I think is essentially been happening for X number of years. You, you fill in the blank for as long as I've been alive. And, and the signs of the times are everywhere. It's basically proven. It's basically provable. Okay, so black propaganda, a lot of Catholics are out there thinking their biggest problem is the kid sees a Disney film or a Harry Potter film. Will you guys get real? That's all, I mean, Disney much more so, white propaganda, okay? If some of your theories about the Potter films are correct, then it's whitish gray propaganda. Let's go into what gray propaganda is. But when you get into the really deceptive stuff, Gray propaganda is at least like Netflix making a document, uh, documentary about Epstein or Madeleine McCann or Emanuela Orlandi and pretending that they're against the bad guys, pretending they're against the Vatican, pretending they're against whoever the kidnapper of Madeleine McCann was, pretending they're against uh, Richard Epstein and all the people he represents. They're not. So it's gray at the very least. It's a Hegelian false dialectic, which is what they use masterfully. Do you guys really believe in aliens? In one or two years' time, it's going to be the crazy people, as slurred on the tongues of those people, media elites who run the show and control the normies' opinions. It's going to be the crazy people that don't believe in aliens come this summer or next summer. Watch and see. It's going to be the normies who all are told they must believe in aliens. Well, guess what? You can do that in a Hollywood movie studio very easily, very convincingly. That's like gray propaganda if it's not an outright species of it. Here's what gray propaganda is by its quiddity. Information and messages that have no clear producer, these are considered gray propaganda. Material of unknown origin leaves a viewer unable to determine the creator of motives behind the message. Now, I guess this would be a more direct instance of me writing an article under a pen name, and I do admit to the editor of the, the leftist feminist magazine, I'm leaving you a pen name. But I'm claiming to be one of them, so it's either gray propaganda or black propaganda. Black propaganda is what our CIA would actually do in South America and Eastern Europe. Our CIA largely pioneered by Bush Sr., who made it what it was. We would install puppet governments in South America and Central uh, 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 Eastern Europe by starting revolutions with black propaganda. You literally say, hey, uh, Smith wrote this. Smith did not write it. Smith might be a well-known guy. You write... Smith says you need to kill all of the Kurds in North Africa to get the Kurds to go kill Smith. This is literally what our CIA has been doing for 60 years and what it's, it's what it's there to do. They state up front the goal of the CIA is to make American reality so strange that the average American can't tell truth from untruth. That you don't know what's a kooky theory and what's not. No one would be surprised if aliens are strange now because that's, uh, if they're real now, because that's less strange than what happened in 2019, 2020, and 2021. That doesn't mean they are. People are all willing to believe it. As Bluebeam clearly stated, look up Bluebeam. Fake pandemic, 
followed by a fake alien invasion. That's real. And it's probably what's happening. So everyone's ready to believe it now because now they see how strange the fake or semi-faked pandemic was. But the CIA literally wants you to not be able to know. Some true things are stranger than some false things they faked, which throws your categories off. You can't tell the real from the fake. Okay, so gray propaganda is when you don't know the source. Black propaganda is how you actually get some guy in some uh, stinkhole country in the, the third world killed, right? This is how you get the, the people with pitchforks shouting Allahu Akbar or whatever in their garbled language and going and killing someone that the U.S. deep state wants them to kill to protect what they interpret as our interests. This is what the deep state does. And in our day, conservatives like me talk about the deep state. Conservatives like Archbishop Vigano talk about the deep state because it's been implemented as against the Vatican, the deep church, implemented against guys like Pope Benedict, and implemented by the American government against American patriots, against American conservatives, against Christians. Remember, Christians are considered a hate group now by many, many of the mainstream left outfits. Christians are considered an official hate group in America. This is one of the marks that your kid may be a right-wing extremist. Does he tend to believe the literal stories of the Old Testament? This is one of the marks. So black, white, and gray propaganda, the difference between agitation propaganda like BLM, make dumb white people you know, particularly white liberals and white centrists feel bad about an imagined past or a past that they shouldn't really care about much or feel guilty for much at all. Um, Make them feel guilty in order to agitate another certain group against them. We saw that in the summer of 2020 when I was fired. Most surgical agitation propaganda of our lives, if you're, you know, 40 years or younger, But pacification propaganda is what we see with these three Netflix documentaries. And they're like gray prop because you're not really knowing the relative positions of the good guy. And the good guy is the storyteller is always a propagandist in a documentary. So my friend Nick Stumphauser said, who directed Died Suddenly. Documentaries are always propaganda. And the good guy is always taken to be the storyteller the director of the documentary itself. Hey, we're going to show you a peek behind the curtain. We're the good guys. If we play this bad piano music when we show this face, that means that's a bad guy. Go get him. If we play this nice music, this means they're a friend. Of They're on the side of us, the filmmaker. Therefore, they're a good guy. And if we say, well, we're not, if we do a four-part series like the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, and they say, well, back it up. In episode one, we presented a theory that this 15-year-old girl, Emanuela Orlandi, who was, in fact, kidnapped on a short walk between where she lived in the Vatican and her music school outside of Piazza Navona, just on the east side of the river. Very, very close. Well, the main theory of episode one was that this was done by a terrorist outfit called the Grey Wolves who were 
uh, essentially ransoming Ali Ajka, the the attempted killer of JP2. They said, hey, we'll give you, we'll give you the girl back, we'll ransom her back to you if you release, the Vatican releases Ali Ajka. That theory is explored in episode one. But then at the beginning of episode two, this also makes the propaganda quite gray. They say, well, that might not be the most compelling theory. See, we, the Netflix documentarians, we, the filmmakers, we're being really objective here. We're even pointing out the weaknesses in theories proposed by us because at the end of one to two, we change theories and we point out some flaws in theory one. See, we're objective. We're distinguishing. We're hyper-qualified. <laughs> um, and then they, they move in episode two to a mob theory, that there's this uh, Italian mob whose girlfriend is being interviewed all throughout episode two. And there are theses which coalesce to insinuate, not without evidence, that an Italian mob was working as the kidnappers themselves and for reasons they play down in episode two, might have done the kidnapping for the Vatican itself. And, and Netflix itself pushes aside the Aliashka theory, which was true. There were, there were calls placed by a number of semi-anonymous sources to the Orlandi family in the week after Emanuela was taken, June the 22nd, 1983, saying, if the Vatican will give up Aliashka, you'll see Emanuela again. Two pushes that aside, shunts it aside, shows some, I think, legitimate troubles to the veracity of that theory and says, no, this is the mob. It's deeper than that. The mob girlfriend is quite explicit in presenting some evidence which shows that, no, the Vatican had more to do with this, more guilt, more culpability than simply not giving up Aliashka. There's more to it. Then episode three, Netflix. It's also a lovely way of getting getting a four parts out of a series instead of one episode. Plus, they look hyper-qualified and objective. Then they move to a strictly hide-the-ball type of theory presentation in episode three, where they suggest that someone called The American... The American, one of the callers and ransomers from episode two, might have been the actual kidnapper and killer and perhaps molester of Emanuela Orlandi. He's the second the second caller to the Orlandi family from that first week after Emanuela was kidnapped. But then it turns out at the end of episode three that the American was basically forensically tested and proven not to have been the guilty party. They just wasted an hour of your time. And if you're not a bit sharp, you might be tempted to say, well, they're just look, they're just presenting all of the theories they have. They're just showing us, you know, back back to the chalkboard, back to the the, you know, drawing room. They're, they're just showing us what they have. And this was interesting. No, it was completely useless. Episode three, if you do go to watch The Disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi, I'm going to tell you what I think is really about. Pedo S. 
You can skip episode three. It's garbage. I mean, the whole series is garbage, but but you should watch at least episode one and maybe episode four as well. The American theory is total bunk. They set up that pin to knock it down. Now, episode four is very interesting because they mention Archbishop Vigano, who did work in the rel- before he was in the uh, in DC. He was yeah. You want to say something here, Stevi? Episode four. Well, I was just going to say what's funny about the whole Vigano thing in episode four is when they they get to Vigano, <laughs> they give like a qualifier, they give like a warning. They're like, now we heard from this Archbishop Vigano, but we're going to warn you, he's a Trumper and an anti-COVID vaxxer. So, and they only really, what's really interesting about this whole series is I think what Tim and I were, were talking about beforehand was that like, we as faithful Catholics, like we have a good idea of the type of scandal that this might have been associated with if you've read when swept house that's the arc which we were expecting to go to they spend four episodes talking about really ridiculous things like money and and crime and and all that sort of things and i'm waiting to get to the windswept house stuff or father elijah yeah pedo pedo s S, right right? that's That's what's what's driving it all we we know know that. that and yet they're presenting this like we're gonna drop so many bombs that that normie catholics are gonna be offended and we're like, no, this is this is too normy what you're presenting us. That's part of the great prop. But yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. No, I'm waiting to hear more about what Vigano says. I want to know more about, um, you know, the some of the I'll let Tim talk about some of the details in episode four. But they only really like very briefly touched on the things that I'm actually and I think most faithful Catholics are actually interested in. We know the Vatican is corrupt. The Vatican Bank is corrupt. We all know this stuff. Like, tell me something about you know, this girl was kidnapped for black masses or something of this nature. Like, that's what I'm here for. That's what I want to hear about. Yeah, like also. In- so we get a, a just a glancing blow reference to Archbishop Vigano before he was in the nunciature in Washington, D.C. He was in the, the press office. And I guess his boss would have been Silvestrini. Is that right? And you get a quick comment that, and you can look into it more and and uncover much more interesting tidbits of information that the documentary refuses to uncover, that Silvestrini, who is the second sort of dawn of the Sankt Gallen Mafia, was getting calls as early as that evening after Emanuela Orlandi had been missing for an hour before her family really even realized this was a kidnapping. And it was several calls. And that when Vigano went to to him, Silvestrini, he's like, no, play this, play this down, play it back. That's really interesting because we know that the Sankt Gallen Mafia is very, very evil. We postulate in conjunction with bits of... Uh, evidence, like Windswept House, that most of the, the high-ranking members of the Sankt Gallen Mafia had something to do with, I, I have to be careful now, some of these guys are still living. We suspect, we opine, and there are folks out there that have more evidence than we do 
that have done more than opine, like Malachi Martin, that they were doing things that were highly, highly, highly black magical. And so kidnapping is right in line. It's right in their wheelhouse. Okay, so that, so that Vigano testimony not only was played down, but it was rushed past. They barely even use his name. And they say, there's nothing really interesting here. Look it up for five minutes and you see there's more there. Toward the end of the fourth episode, Emanuela's friend, who is silhouetted in black dramatically as if she's going to drop bombs, she drops a semi-bomb, but then here's the real tell, the deafening silence. She says that Emanuela had, right before she got kidnapped, revealed a secret to her, the friend, that they'd been sneaking out and on Emanuela's private walks in the Vatican Gardens, she had been getting, sorry, not been getting, I won't use the, the uh, imperfect here. We don't know whether it's a past occurrence that happened once or whether we should use the imperfect tense, meaning it happened multiple times. Netflix doesn't even let you know. She says that she got bothered, that's the operative verb, by a high-ranking cardinal that was close to JP2. Bothered. Now, in Italian, this would be uh, a molestato, right? Which can go be interpreted bothered or molested. I don't, I, I mean, I'm operating from the English translation. But bothered is a very, very loaded term because it can mean molested or it can mean, you, you know, you, you harass someone for a second. This is the most interesting point of the entire four hours that we blew on this pacification propaganda. And they didn't even allow the friends. This is how I've been in documentaries. You get, you get grilled by the documentarian for hours and they pick what they want out. So we didn't even see, was this a single walk? Was this repeated walks? Was it being bothered? Did she get molested? Had she been a part of a black mass to that point? Who was the cardinal that she was speaking to? Right. They Why are you were, covering for him? The fr- they, Netflix walked, like, through four episodes, Netflix walked through all these, for lack of a better phrase, boomer theories, money, mafia, all this stuff. They walked right up to the plate for, like, the sex cult stuff inside the Vatican. And bunted. And, and they bunted. And they bunted. Yeah, and I mean, they even mentioned the connection that the Vatican has one mention to the Freemasons, the, the, you know, the pedo-Satanism sex magic stuff, which is real, which is, which is what we're really after here. Which member, which cardinal was this? Why would they not present evidence from the silhouetted friend of Emanuela Orlandi saying, hey, this girl alleges it's this cardinal. I thought you guys hate Catholics, right? That's how the gray propaganda works. They have a role to play uh, in this Hegelian dialectic, you know, false opposition. Everyone knows these non-Catholics that run Netflix, you know who they are. They are not Catholic and they have to play this role. We don't like the Catholic church. Well, real Catholics, trad Catholics, we want pedo satanists who have hurt children we want them we want let the guilty hang right we want them out of our church we want them swinging from trees if they've hurt or killed children 
That's like saying, oh, these conservatives are going to be so mad that we make a documentary against Kevin McCarthy. No, he's not one of us, right? He's WEF, as are most of the Republicans. Like, you know, salt and burn the Republican Party. That's not for conservatives. Same thing with most members of the Vatican, as far as I opine, or as far as I know, which isn't particularly far. We suspect all of the cardinals, all the powerful Catholics of the last 50, 60, 70 years. Speaking of powerful bishops, uh, can you talk about the, one of the really interesting parts of the documentary was the brother of uh, Emanuela Orlandi, who has been just keeping this case really in the public eye for all this time. His, his father died many years ago. I think his mother's 92 now. He had mentioned that Pope Francis in particular had invited the mother um, oh. and, and the brother to a mass for Emanuela. This was very recent. And the documentary doesn't give many details, but they, they make mention that the mass got downgraded to basically just like a private meeting outside of a building somehow. And the brother and Pope Francis have an intimate conversation, very brief. And the brother, you know, thanks him for inviting him. And Pope Francis makes a, a point of saying, well, Emanuela is in heaven. And the brother and the family, their whole position throughout the entire documentary was that, hey, stop saying my sister's dead. We don't know she's dead. Yes, she's been miss missing for 40 years, but we're still keeping hope. So the brother responds to Francis, well, you know, we still have hope that she's alive. And Francis doubles down, and they have this on film, and he says, Emanuela is in heaven. Yeah, this is Pietro Orlandi, and it's televised. You can't really hear what Francis is saying. Francis has got a big mouth. Francis is an evil dude with a big mouth. He's a troll, and he's not bluffing a lot of times. He can't keep his big, fat mouth shut about what they're going to do to the Latin Mass. There will be another uh, apostolic exhortation on the Latin Mass this April, April or, or May, that will be a stronger denunciation of the Latin Mass because the motu proprio from two summers ago did not achieve its intended effect. All the bishops whom Francis was pretending to deputize through the motu proprio traditionis custodis are like, no, we're going to keep letting the Latin Mass go, at least some. So now he's desperate. He wants to poke real practicing Catholics in the eye further, and he's actually going to destroy the Latin Mass. That's the news that came out yesterday or, or um, the late, late the night before. Francis has a big, fat mouth. He has a big, fat, foul mouth, just as he's a big, fat, foul man. And he is always saying unpleasant things and using disgusting, shocking imagery like a demon, like when he taught us all about coprophagia and coprophilia. He cannot wait to deliver bad news, to be a bearer of bad news. And usually, since he's one of the leaders of the globalist agenda in the world, he runs point for places like the WEF and the UN. He has a lot of info, but he's just waiting to share it. So he takes Pietro aside on screen and he says, look, your sister's in heaven. And Pietro's like, well, we're hoping she's still alive. And he, he grabs him. He goes, your sister's in heaven. He's telling him with nous. He's telling him because he's saying this is not beyond my ken. 
he's telling him because he has she and tear. And that's very clear. You can see it. You can see it on screen. And the Netflix documentary makers shouldn't have even let this tidbit on their guy, Francis, slip through. The only reason they let it slip through is because they don't know his psychology as well as I do or we do. Parish orphans and retrogrades. They thought it's just Pope Francis looking kind of innocent. Not at all. It's very, clue, uh, it's very clear that Francis has now, because, of course, like Netflix bizarrely led us to the trough of water, it's true. The Vatican is in on it, but they're not in on it to pay back a debt to the mob. Or if they are, it has much more to do with satanic sex magic black rituals that some folks, let's say that, have been doing in and around the Vatican since right after the time that Vatican II began, according to Malachi Martin. I'm reporting according to Malachi Martin. It was uh, June 29th. See, we, at one point, we thought this was June 29th. Uh, we, were, we were searching for the date when Malachi Martin said the Black Mass happened to an Emanuela Orlandi type, who's known as only Agnes, who was sex-tortured in a Black Mass in something called the Satanic Enthronement, which gives something called the availing time. This allegedly happened on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, on June 29, 1963. The availing time is time of heightened power for Satan that was supposed to last between 40 and 50 years, according to Martin, which is why Catholics laid, good Catholics laid down their arms and were so impotent in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and have only now begun picking up their proverbial arms and fighting back and saying, we don't like these guys like Francis or the people that put him in power. So it's an interesting theory. Martin wrote the book in 96, and now it seems to have been justified after the fact. Well, the Netflix documentarians did not think that they're tipping their hand over much by showing Francis saying, no, no, I know that your sister's dead. We, you know, we have, we have archives on this probably, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think most faithful Catholics who are watching this documentary, um, this one, the Madeleine McCann one and the Epstein one, um, we're all, we have the same suspicion. It's just, it's the pedophilia stuff that we are seeing all over the news, just everywhere. And it's like, yeah, the, the, we see these media companies step kind of up to the plate. And then right when you get to that point, when we talk about these pedo rings that are happening supposedly in DC and all over the world in the Vatican, then that's when they aren't as ballsy as they, they claim they are. Then they start really backing off. Yeah, but the point is it's a planned obsolescence. It's a planned back off. This is how pacification propaganda works. Right, yeah. A few background facts on this four-part documentary series, which is absolute undeniable instance of pacification propaganda is that Emanuela Orlandi was a Vatican teenager who mysteriously disappeared while returning home from a flute lesson in Rome on June the 22nd, 1983. Like I said, we are looking for the date of the satanic enthronement, which was June 29th, one week to the day later, but in 1963. 
right after Paul VI became Pope, a week after he became Pope. Sightings of Orlandi in various places have been reported over the years, including inside Vatican City, but all have been unreliable. The girl's disappearance sparked an intense media frenzy in Italy, much like the Madeleine McCann, pedo-Satanism, probable, disappearance uh, in England and Portugal, where she was taken from. And this, Orlandi's disappearance, has been called, quote, Italy's most famous unsolved mystery. Emanuela was the fourth of five children of Ercole and Maria Orlandi. Her father was a worker. Oh, we're going to talk about this term. Her father was a, a worker at the Institute for the Works of Religion, according to some reports, which cannot be verified, no matter how much I've looked. Or an employee of the papal household, according to others. Why the heck can't we figure it out? He's either, he worked under someone like Georg Gonswein, who is the head of the papal household, or he worked for the Institute for the Works of Religion. What's that? That is what we call Vatican Bank. The Vatican Bank. Had his daughter kidnapped and ransomed and that's very interesting, but we can't even figure out what the dad actually did. These are two very different jobs, and these two theories are floated out there. Also, this is how gray propaganda works. The family lived inside Vatican City. They were, I guess, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the hundred or so lay people who were allowed to live inside Vatican City. That means this one Orlandi family constituted, at least in 1983, 7% of the total population of lay people in Vatican City. One of them went missing such that with Emanuela's disappearance, 1% fully of the population of Vatican City, who is lay person, went missing. That's striking. And the children had the free run of the Vatican Gardens, which is dope until someone turns up missing and pokes out an eye. It's all fun and games. According to Pietro Orlandi, Emanuela's older brother, he's the main representative of the Orlandi family, as interviewed in the Netflix doc. Orlandi was in her second year of, of high school in Rome. Although the school year had concluded, because it was June, she continued to take flute lessons three times per week at the Tommaso Ludovico da Vittoria School, connected with the Pontifical Institute of Sacred Music. I didn't know it was connected with that. She was also part of the choir of the church at Sant'Anna del Pellefrineri at the Vatican. Um, and there's, there's, let me read you, I, I think you should watch this, even though I was besmirching episode three as garbage. It's still interesting. It's a good watch, and I want you to watch it thinking, this is pacification propaganda. They are doing everything. You'll know from the beginning what to look for to dodge that this girl was clearly taken as, I think, an Agnes type. Someone to be molested and offered up. Sometimes killed, sometimes not. And we, and we know about a lot of this, um, the sex cults going on inside the Vatican. Remember that story not too long ago? It was the Vatican apartments, correct? That they were having male prostitutes visiting the Vatican apartments, visiting priests, and that got, the story got blown open. And that's, I think, when people originally who were otherwise ignorant of what's going on inside the Vatican were like, what is happening here? Well, for militant normies out there who might be listening or, or Pope Splainers or something, I, I don't know. 
I don't know who, which of the Pope's planners uh, might be listening. More of them listen than you think. It wasn't the Vatican apartments. It was the Holy Office. This was at the CDF that in 2017, a cocaine and gay sex party, usually this means uh, Satanism, drug and sex is usually a byword that is released. Remember, they're watering down. Remember, you're Murray Bauman. This is usually a, 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 a pedo-Satanism party. No way to verify this. This is my opinion. But strongly, strongly I opine that if they're releasing this much, they're taking it down from here to here. That's usually, uh, uh, at the very least, a gay sex party. That's, that's always demonic. It was at the Holy Office, the CDF. Several cardinals were allowed to go out the back door. There's a party all about the back door, right? <laughs> and they were, they were all allowed to get out by the carabinieri that showed up first. Uh, sorry, Vatican police that showed up first. At the Holy Office. At the Holy Office. And there are ton, there's just tons of money and cocaine and male prostitutes everywhere. Could there have been, would there have been underage children there, I would bet a large sum, but that's just a bet. So yes, that's at the Holy Office, and that's what gets released to us. Also, folks, you have to remember iceberg theory. Iceberg theory in conjunction with the wisdom of Murray Bauman from Netflix, the clip I played you. This is everything you need to know. Whatever they're releasing, it's 10 times worse. You thought, maybe before you watched this show today, on rules for retrogrades, you thought, well, yeah, but they're going to release everything they have. They keep their powder dry to go after the church. No, they don't. No, they don't. Go read Time Magazine on Pope Francis. Go read Time Magazine on Cardinal Martini, who they, they called the Ante Pope. Go read Time Magazine on the cardinals that are friendly to Francis. They are, at least in some senses, probably in more than some, one of them. Okay, I know, you know, this is not a Pope-splaining audience, but you will never be gaslit to the effect that Obama wasn't a radical. I've never been gaslit in that direction. Somehow I'm always being gaslit that Francis isn't 10 times the radical that Obama is, 100 times the radical. Okay, that's really odd. Oh, Oh, you know, Francis is the most wicked man on earth that's currently drawing breath. Make no mistake. No yeah. doubt. And this is how we know they're intentionally Netflix sidestepping the whole like pedo um, sex cult stuff in this particular documentary, in my opinion, is because they spend three entire episodes going into the banal details of things like money and just really boring stuff. And then they walk right up to the plate in episode four to Vigano, all this really interesting stuff that most people in, in Tim's audience, the names, all these these things that we talk about frequently here, they just kind of mention it. Like, okay, we're just going to throw this out here real fast and then we're moving right past it. Which is a leitmotif for pacification propaganda, which is why I spent however many minutes I spent on the Epstein documentary that the same folks at Netflix put out, I mean, the same general interest at Netflix put out, same general interest at Netflix put out the Madeleine McCann documentary to cover up for the pedo-Satanism. I mean, this is real, whether or not 
your your normie friends want to believe it, whether or not your polite Catholic friends at dinner parties will ever accept it. It's real, and it's how these people get and maintain power. They get powers by doing it. If you're sniggering right now, then like, go read the WikiLeaks dump. Uh, go read what the Podestas do. Go Google Tony Podesta's art collection, okay? And that's on you. Yeah, it'll ruin your day. The, as well. Yeah. I, I wonder if we can even say that. On, but yeah, go look up pizza. Uh, go look it up with the G-A-T-E on... I mean, you got to look up the right some of the right sources, but this stuff is documented. It's un, unmistakably true. At least some of the elements that, that are requisite elements for proving that this is not a debunked theory. This is absolutely bunked. <laughs> so, yeah, the leitmotif in this kind of pacification propaganda is all there. I think you, you people, if you have four hours, you should watch the Orlandi thing. It's become re- recently reopened here in 2023 because on January the 9th, just last week, the Vatican announced that it would reopen it. Uh, Pope Francis appointed head prosecutor Alessandro Didi to lead the probe. Bad, bad term. <laughs> bad choice of words when it comes to this group of folks. The Vatican plans to conduct a complete review that will re-examine all files, reports, and testimony. This is like leaving a fox in charge of your hen house. I mean, the reason that the Vatican's doing this is because Gerard Gonswine made a mention of Orlandi in his book that just came out. Vigano is talking about it here and there in dribs and drabs. Benedict talked about it in dribs and drabs. And it was a very, very big case there in Italy. Just just for... I just want to run through really quickly. I know this has been a long show. Uh, a few of the, the basic, basic points that need clarification about the Orlandi case itself and then let you go have at it. You really ought to watch it because it points you clearly at what's really going on, which is a peek behind the curtain, behind the curtain. Um, this 15-year-old, Emanuela Orlandi, usually traveled by bus to the music school to get off after a few stops and watch walk the last few hundred meters. On Wednesday, June 23rd, 1983, Orlandi was late to class. She'd asked her brother Pietro to drive her. This is a sad part, especially as the day was very hot, but he had other commitments. I've gone over it so many times, telling myself, if only I'd accompanied her, maybe it wouldn't have happened. He recalled decades later. It's sad, and he, he troubles over this in one of the more human moments of the documentary on film. Later that day, Emanuela called home to explain why she was not back yet. Speaking to one of her sisters, she said she had received a job offer from a representative of Avon. And it might or might not have been a lie she was telling because she had this guilty conscience that's never unpacked about her walks in the Vatican Gardens and her being bothered by a cardinal. We don't know once or multiple times whether she'd been molested or what. According to some reports, Orlandi allegedly met with the Avon representative shortly before her music lesson. At the end of the class, Orlandi spoke of the job offer with a female friend. This is the important friend that gets all of 25 seconds, who's clearly really on to the true thing that happened to her friend Emanuela. Uh, 
The friend then left the girl at a bus stop in the company of another girl. Orlandi was allegedly last seen getting into a large, dark-colored BMW. At 3 p.m. on the next day, Orlandi's parents called the director of the music school to ask if any of the daughter's classmates had information. The police had suggested waiting because, quote, perhaps the girl was with friends, end quote. She was officially declared a missing person that day. Over the next two days, announcements of the disappearance were published with the telephone number of the Orlandi house in the newspapers Il Tempo, Paese Sera, and Il Messaggero. At 6 on Saturday, June 25th, two days after that, a phone call was received from a youth who claimed to be a 16-year-old boy named Pierre Luigi. I didn't know he was a youth. He reported that he and his fiance had met the missing girl in Piazza Navona that afternoon. The young man mentioned Orlandi's flute, her hair, and the glasses that she did not like to wear, along with other details that fit the missing girl. According to Pierre Luigi, Orlandi had just had a haircut and had introduced herself as Barbarella. He claimed she stated she had just run away from home and was selling Avon products. On June the 28th, three days after that, a man calling himself Mario, they, none of the Italians get that Mario and Luigi are funny, uh, called the family and claimed to own a bar near Ponte Vittorio between the Vatican and the music school. He said that a girl called Barbara, a new customer, had confided to him about being a fugitive from home, which the documentary doesn't state very clearly, but said that she would return home for her sister's wedding. Not a word of that in the documentary, is it? No. On June the 30th, Rome was plastered with a large number of posters displaying Orlandi's photograph. On July the 3rd, and the documentary makes a big deal out of this, Pope John Paul II, during the Angelus, appeared to those responsible for Orlandi's disappearance, making the hypothesis of kidnapping official for the first time. Two days later, the Orlandi family received the first of a number of anonymous phone calls Emanuela was supposedly the prisoner of a terrorist group demanding the release of Mehmet Ali Ajka, the Turkish man who shot the Pope two years before. No other information was given. In the following days, other calls were received, including one from a man identified as the American. This is the guy that they spend all of episode three on just to, just to knock down the theory. He's the same man suggested an ex... The same man... Ex Wait, sorry. Due to his apparent accent, the American played a recording of Orlando's voice over the phone. A few hours later, in another phone call to the Vatican, the same man suggested an exchange of Orlandi for Ajka. The anonymous interlocutor mentioned the Mario and Pierluigi of the earlier telephone calls, defining them as members of the organization. On July 6th, a man with a young voice and an American accent informed the ANSA news agency of the demand for an Orlandi Ashka exchange, asking for the Pope's participation within 20 days and indicating that a basket in the public square near the Parliament would contain proof that Orlandi was indeed in his hands. These were to have been photocopies of her music school identity card, a receipt for tuition, and a note handwritten by the kidnapped girl. On July the 8th, a man with an alleged Middle Eastern accent phoned one of Orlandi's classmates. I don't think they mentioned this in the documentary, saying the girl was in his hands and that they had 20 days to make the exchange with Ajka. The man also asked for a direct telephone line with Cardinal Agostini, Agostino Casaroli, who was the Cardinal Secretary of State and one of the prime bad guys in 
windswept house. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. The line was installed on July the 18th. A total of 16 telephone calls were made by the American from different public telephones. On July the 17th, instructions were given on where to find an audio cassette that appeared to be a recording of the girl being tortured. The police told the family they did not believe it to be Orlandi, although her brother has expressed doubts about this. 18 years later, on the morning of May the 14th, not May the 13th, but May the 14th, 2001, the parish priest of the Gregory VII Church near the Vatican discovered a human skull of small dimensions and lacking a jaw in a bag with an image of Padre Pio in a confessional. Although it has not been identified as Orlandi's skull, the discovery generated suspicions that it might be hers. Emanuela's father, Ercole, died in 2004, a month after giving his last interview. Now there's an, an Orlandi Ajka theory of the kidnapping, an organized crime theory, a Vatican sex scandal theory that was proposed by someone I believe more than any of these people. Well, one, I do believe Archbishop Vigano. And this sex scandal theory is proposed by... Uh, Right now, he'd be 96, 96-year-old exorcist Father Gabriel Amorth, aside from the fact that he died two years ago. In May 2012, Amorth claimed that Orlandi was kidnapped by a member of the Vatican police for sex parties, then murdered. Amorth claimed that officials of an unnamed foreign embassy were involved in we as well. Can you say probably America, if you had to guess, if you had to bet a large sum of money? Oh, can we play that or no? Yeah, let me try to play the trailer for you guys. Tell me if you have a hard time hearing this, but this is going to be on your left-hand side of your screen. This is the Netflix trailer. It gives some of the 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 um, information. One of the reasons also, I'll just say, I really what I enjoyed watching about this is that when Tim and I lived out there for a year, Rome is a very small city. And so when they were doing a lot of the drone footage and some of the locations of where some of these things were and where she was abducted, it's like I, Tim and I would walk those areas all the time. When we were out there, we had no idea that this girl had been missing or any of this. It was just very, very interesting to us. Uh, here, let me try to put this on. And here we go. This is the trailer for Netflix for Vatican Girl, the documentary. Mia sorella Emanuela è scomparsa ormai da 37 anni. Emanuela was not an ordinary child. She was a Vatican girl. The man who shot the Pope. Terrorism is just a decoy to divert attention from some secret inside the Vatican. No terrorist plots, but crime and money. It was a mystery, or it was the beginning of a mystery. This is a list of the expenses sustained by the Vatican State for Emmanuel Orlandi. Il 
Il silenzio è una cosa più angosciante che una famiglia può subire. Non importa quanto terrai un segreto nascosto, prima o poi la verità verrà fuori. So, I recommend watching this. Watch it, especially those of you who have read Windswept House. Note three or more of the leitmotifs of pacification propaganda. You'll see it in the other Netflix documentaries about pedo-Satanism that I mentioned. Number one, they have to get out ahead of the story, so they point at something, quote, scary yet familiar, like uh, Marie Bauman says. Number two, they have to make it more tolerable, the truth, because it's not really the truth, so they're, they're giving you an alternative diagnosis, but one which will look like they found it, they came to it after some digging. And number three, in order to achieve one and two, they they use something I call false variegation. They give different theories, fake distinctions, different colors. They're all fake. And some of them they'll even admit are fake, like the entire episode three. At the very least, it's relatively entertaining for four hours. And at the, at, I think at the very most, this is of value to you, retrogrades and parish orphans, because you guys are not normies. Most of you have read either Father Elijah or Windswept House or both, and you understand that this represents, if not the demographically dominant, at least the ideologically prevailing point of view in the Vatican today. That's my opinion anyway. And you can see that all 15 seconds that are given to Archbishop Vigano, who's telling the truth about the economic scandal that led to the worse sex stuff, and they all together skipped Gabriel Amorth's testimony or theory about this. Zero seconds were given to Amorth's theory about it. And all of a sudden you'll say, these Netflix people who really don't like the Roman Catholic Church, who should be eager to point out a cardinal that's using a, a girl for a pedo sex magic party. Why do they investigate every theory aside from this one, which is probably really what happened? It's because it's all one interest, my friends. And this is how mass media works. It's in the hands of the diabolical parties. So, Vatican girl, you should go take a look if you have a chance this weekend. I think you'll find it of value, particularly if you know to watch it in the vein of propaganda. Thank you guys very much. Different kind of show today. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned. We'll be doing C-Mask tomorrow on Elliot Hulse's channel. Well, I might come to you with a Saturday show this week. Stay tuned. Desvol, God bless. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy 
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.